Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. And we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com and become a subscriber. Like us. We'll like you. So we're very pleased to welcome our guest, Professor Alexander Theodoridis, an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. He helped to direct the UMass poll. His work has been featured by the New York Times, Washington Post, Scientific American, Times, CNN, The Hindu, The Economist, and many other media outlets. Uh, he now resides in Massachusetts after coming from the Bay Area. So after Pearl Harbor, Americans felt a burst of national unity that carried us through the Second World War. After 9-11, polling showed a rise in Americans' trust in government that cut across both parties. It hit levels not seen since before Watergate, and that lasted for months afterwards. Today, that situation has changed. In the days after the January 6th violent, seditious attacks on Congress, the American people were, shall we say, briefly aghast and outraged. While 137 House Republicans still voted to overturn the results of the election, the Republican Party's favorability rates dropped by 13 points. Support for Trump cratered. Some Republican leaders even Mitch McConnell went so far as to say that, quote, President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of that day. And there were widespread hopes that we would have a bipartisan commission to investigate. But barely a week later, Republican voter identification with Trump rebounded to pre-election levels. And by April, support for the Republican Party completely recovered. Now, now, the last week has shown how even the most searing national events get sucked down a partisan rabbit hole, rabbit hole as Republican leadership has come out against any commission on looking into January 6th after crazy machinations to get the Democrats to compromise on it. And increasingly, Republicans question whether there was even anything unusual about that day. They're, they're calling it just a normal tourist visit by a group of well-meaning patriots. So what on earth has happened to our country? Professor Theodoridis, you're an expert in political behavior and psychology and how we form political opinions. You told the New York Times that the half-life of January 6th memory has proven remarkably short, given the objectively shocking nature of what took place at the Capitol that day. Why has that been the case? Well, you know, partisanship is a hell of a drug. Um, I think that's, that's what it comes down to. We were uh, extremely polarized and, uh, and we're polarized in a way that, that features this kind of zero sum us against them uh, conflict. And so anything that's uh, a win for the other side is a loss for our side. And in that context, uh, things get, you know, things, things are viewed through these very thick, uh, almost opaque red and blue colored lenses. Um, you, you know, you, you see things 
in, in ways that suit your existing partisanship and, you know, and suit the, um, the, the, the advancement of your side because you see the other side uh, as this awful, awful thing. And, um, and, you know, increasingly that's the case. And so, you know, that's why we have this situation where, um, you know, it's easy to sort of convince people that uh, what happened on January 6th isn't such a big deal. And it's, and it's just the liberals, um, you know, sort of pushing this, you know, on the other side, I will say that, I mean, Joe Biden has been trying to advance his, um, his agenda. He's been trying to do things. He's been trying uh, in, in that context to really, you know, highlight a contrast between himself and the prior administration in terms of not being divisive and, and all of that. So, you know, you're not hearing a tremendous amount of rehashing what happened on January 6th uh, from the you know, titular head of the, of the Democratic Party either, right? So even this, uh, you know, Biden is for it and he mentions from time to time that we, we need to, you know, look at what happened on January 6th. But um, you, so you're not, you're not getting this constant drumbeat um, even on the left uh, and on the right, what you're getting is a constant um, downplay of what happened. And, and by the way, let me note, you know, so we have a lot of poll numbers about January 6th specifically. Um, and the discussion about the commission is about January 6th specifically. And January 6th was horrific. There's no question about it. Um, but I think that, you know, it needs to be thought of in the context of what it was the culmination of, um, which is something that continues to this day, uh, which really, you know, January 6th itself was not an existential threat to our republic and our democracy, right? That was a relatively small number of people. They, they could have done some terrible, terrible things. People could have been killed more than were killed. Some of our elected officials could have been killed from both parties. Um, it could have been a lot worse that specific day. But the real existential threat um, that surrounded that day was a president um, refusing to accept the results of an election, an election that wasn't particularly close. Um, and, and not just that, because if Trump had been sort of alone in the insanity, um, you know, who cares, right? He would have just been, uh, you know, marginalized, et cetera. But, but, but his whole party uh, went along with it, right? The, the top, top people, the people who uh, imagine themselves running for president next time, the leadership. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Mitch McConnell um, and, and even McCarthy said some things that countered Trump. But I mean, in general, the response, even from those guys, has been at best to try to have it both ways um, and at worst to genuflect to uh, Donald Trump and to this big lie specifically uh, that this election was stolen somehow. Uh, no evidence, of course, uh, and no credible evidence, no serious evidence of any sort of fraud of the scale that you would need in order to, again, flip what wasn't a particularly close election. And so I think that, you know, hopefully we don't lose sight of the fact that what, what was attempted here um, by both Trump and his supporters, and in particular, the Republican leadership, um, 
really failed, frankly, because we got lucky that Democrats controlled the House, um, that it was more than one state that needed to be flipped, uh, that a few Republicans showed some backbone in places like Georgia, et cetera. Um, but, but, you know, there, there's, this was an attempt uh, at something that I think is an existential threat to American democracy more than the specific um, events of January 6th themselves. Um, Matt, but- let, me, let me just follow up on something that, that your, <clears throat> your, the, your first response yeah. um, inspired. You talked about this as kind of like a drug like a drug event. I, I'm thinking about something that, that actually goes a little bit beyond the polling. And uh, because uh, you're a behavioral psychologist, essentially, um, I want to, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, in the Muslim world, you've got um, real tribalism with Shia and Sunni and existential battles about small differences that end up producing calamitous violence uh, in that kind of tribalism. In this country, which is becoming more and more secular, it seems like politics uh, is our tribal um, is our tribal battlefield. And we've often used the word tribalism in politics. But does it go much deeper than the superficial meaning that we often ascribe to it? Is there something innate in human behavior and human psychology that creates the conditions um, for the kind of tribalism we're seeing now with with the Republican Party essentially becoming an anti-democratic authoritarian leaning um, denier of science and, and fact to, 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 is there something embedded in the human condition that makes it attractive uh, to, for this kind of tribalism? Well, there's, there's no question. Um, and you can see this in study after study, you can see it in uh, history uh, repeated over and over again, along any number of dimensions, as you, as you mentioned, there's there's no shortage of dimensions along which we can divide ourselves. Um, you know, in-group, out-group dynamics, identifying in-groups and out-groups on the basis of whatever the dynamic is, um, we are absolutely wired um, to do that. Uh, there, you, know, you know, and there are survival benefits you can see. Uh, it's not just humans, by the way, it's all sorts of species, um, uh, you know, try to find you know, groups, who's like me and who's not like me, right? And what does that mean? Well, that often means, you know, who's part of my tribe, who's part of my family, um, you know, who's, who's somebody that I can trust, who's somebody who I can't trust, who's not following the same rules that I'm following, um, who has the same values that I have, who's, who has the same moral code that I have, right? So, so all of these things are things that are uh, hardwired, and we've seen them play out in larger scales um, along religious lines, obviously along you know fairly arbitrary racial lines, ethnic lines, uh, etc. Et so, so yeah, absolutely. This is this is something that um, you know it takes some work to overcome. 
for people. You know, the, the, the famous study that is talked about all the time um, in looking at partisanship is this robber's cave study that was done uh, with, with boys who were, you know, two groups that were, they were separated basically in a camp and weren't aware of the, each other um, until a few days in. Um, and you very quickly see them, even though they were, you know, specifically chosen to be almost identical, the two groups, um, you see them very quickly start to stereotype each other, um, attack each other, dislike each other, et cetera, um, for no reason, right? There's no, there's, there's very little there. And then when you add actual stakes of like, oh, your side has to get this uh, before the other side, that kind of thing. Absolutely. We, we see lots of evidence that even when the dimension is not particularly meaningful, in fact, sometimes the dimension um, of in-group, out-group can be uh, what we call a minimal group, which is essentially just a randomly assigned group. You're an overestimator and these people are underestimators. Um, we, we see people are very readily able to uh, start understanding the world in these in these group ways and again this is probably a survival mechanism it's probably a a way to simplify the world right uh and you mentioned conspiracy theories and things like that that those are also ways by the way of simplifying the world right uh it's a complex world that we have to interact with cognitively um and so we look for ways to simplify it and group dimensions do that now on partisanship what has happened um uh, you know, there's, there's, there's always been these divisions. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at politics in the last century, there was a lot of polarization. Um, there was polarization, certainly during the 60s and 70s and 50s over race. Then you get the, the you know, the Vietnam War and all sorts of cultural um, differences, right? You just have to watch All in the Family to see a lot of it, uh, you know, kind of uh, fictionalized there. Um, there was a lot of polarization, but what wasn't it? What's different? It wasn't partisan polarization. Um, the, the, we, it, it, as sort of an accident of history, the Democratic Party included some of the most conservative uh, leaders. The Republican Party included some pretty liberal uh, leaders. In the, in the mass public, your ideology, liberal or conservative, um, wasn't that tied you know, it was correlated, but it wasn't extraordinarily correlated with your partisanship the way that it is today. Um, and what's happened is our ideology has become incredibly correlated with partisanship. Our, um, uh, you know, demographics have become incredibly correlated with partisanship, a lot of them. Uh, you know, geographically, there's a lot of partisanship um, along geographic lines. Uh, and even worldview. So when we look at something like, you know, do you think of the world as some great work by Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Weiler um, in a book called Prius or Pickup that looks at, um, you know, how the, the answers to questions about how children should be raised that, that essentially reflect uh, our view of whether the world is a dangerous place that we need to be, that we need protection from and we need rules to keep everything in order or a sort of fun place where things need to be explored and, you know, where we, where we need more freedom, et cetera. Um, and that's again, reflected in how people say children should be raised, what qualities are good in children. Um, and, and they find that like, if you look back to the seventies, 
Democrats and Republicans were pretty much the same on, on those questions. Now, massively correlated, um, you know, with the people who have what they call a fixed worldview um, being, you know, overwhelmingly Republican and the people who have a fluid worldview being overwhelmingly uh, Democrats. So party has now become this overarching identity that encompasses our education level, where we live, the types of things that we uh, like to buy. Do you like craft beer or do you, do you just grab the, uh, you know, the Bud Light off the shelf, right? Um, you know, do you go to chain restaurants or, you know, are you, are you going to the farm to table restaurant? Do you, um, you know, do, do you, do you like uh, fancy coffee or is, is what's at 7-Eleven, you know, good enough to, to, to get your day started, right? All of these things um, that it really has become us versus them um, in a lot of ways. And that's sort of where I wanted to pick up because to me, as you say, polarization is not new. And it's possible to have sort of a multicultural society make it. I mean, we had a great civil war in this country, but it's possible to persist. What strikes me, and in trying to kind of connect the dots back to some of your work, what strikes me as especially problematic is what you said a moment ago about it's not just that we live in two different realities. It's that adherence to the cult of Trump these days requires in an Orwellian sense for you to accept that two plus two equals five. You have to accept a certain degree of non-reality as a shibboleth, as, a, as the price of entry into a certain kind of tribe and political culture. And what I mean is in that same article where you were quoted in the New York Times, Thomas Edsel, the, the author of that article points out that in your polling, you help oversee the UMass poll, which has a ton of really useful information in it. And he points out that what was surprising in that poll is respondents were a little confused about the causes of January 6th. That, that the percentage that blamed the left, 16% blamed the Democratic Party for January 6th, 4% blamed Joe Biden, 11% blamed Antifa, a, a total of 31% are kind of blaming shadowy forces on the left. And what you were saying a moment ago to Paul's question about the way we fundamentally view reality is it's almost not a moral judgment. It's just baked in to how we take in information. And you wrote a piece for Scientific American that kind of laid some of this out that in, in a time of hyper-partisanship, the information we choose to consume and the way we see it and what we kind of confirm in our own minds and dismiss in our own minds is totally colored by this level of partisanship. So do you agree? I mean, does it strike you that what's sort of really messed up about where we're at is not just that we inhabit different realities. It's that one of those realities, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a value judgment here, but one of those realities really requires you to say climate science isn't real. The big lie about the election is real and everything the other side said is wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely asymmetric at this moment. Um, you know, I, 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 I find um, that uh, both Republicans and Democrats engage in what we're talking about, which is called, called motivated reasoning, right? Um, that, that you, our brains work pretty hard, um, even when we're not aware of it, to try to overcome 
something that psychologists call cognitive dissonance, right? That when, when something, when a piece of information comes in that doesn't fit with how we already see things, um, it, it creates a stressor basically. And motivated reasoning is, is the set of tools that we use often to dismiss that, to come up with a reason why the, you know, the, whoever's telling us this isn't credible, uh, all of these things, right? So motivating reasoning is very powerful. Um, and leaders obviously play a big role uh, in, in pushing this. Um, and so, yes, you end up with, you know, vast, the vast majority in our, in our UMass poll, um, you know, Democrats, like 79% of them uh, say that Trump is at fault, right? So they've sort of, you know, we, we gave them these questions saying like, how much do you place uh, who do you place? Where do you place blame? And they, they all basically all say Trump and a few other, um, you know, uh, Republican Party, things like that. Um, and I think that objectively, uh, that is where the, you know, the blame belongs. But then you get, you know, uh, Republicans not wanting to do that. So they're finding other groups and they say Antifa, they're, they're more spread out, basically. You don't have them, uh, 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 you know, coordinating on one particular uh, place. And then if you ask them, you know, to describe the people involved in it. They, the Republicans uh, will tend to say protesters uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, things like terrorists and, um, you know, uh, insurrectionists that, that Democrats say. And the same is true if you ask them, you know, how to describe the events that took place that day. Democrats will uh, use uh, things like riots and, you know, words like riots and coup uh, things like that, whereas Republicans will tend to say protest, um, right? So we're, we're already getting, um, and, and, and a lot of this is being just received from the elite media sources and from um, the politicians, right, that, that, that are feeding this information to, uh, to voters. And it, and it, you know, it doesn't take much because uh, we're all primed to engage in this motivated reasoning uh, that you mentioned. Professor, you talked about cognitive dissonance, a really interesting way that we take in information. One of the interesting things about cognitive dissonance is, is that when cognitive dissonance uh, is at work in your brain, you have to make a decision about, about the information that you're assimilating. And the word decision has an interesting etymology. It's decision or to cut away from. And that's what a decision is. You have to cut away from your former belief because now that cognitive dissonance is at work, you've got new information, you make a decision and, and you move on. But the cognitive dissonance and forcing that kind of decision, which is maybe an unconscious decision, essentially, um, uh, as you briefly alluded to, comes from a number of different sources. So we talked about the Republican Party. Um, uh, my friend Robeson here is seeing, seeing essentially a, a, a tribal group that is uh, intent on escaping from reality. And I'm wondering that how much of this warping of reality is intentional? I mean, is it the leadership on the Republican Party that is driving and reshaping the cognitive dissonance and the way people think and forcing these decisions about, yeah, I can, I, I have to, I accept Trump. Trump is my God and only my God. And anything he says is, is what it is. Or when you think about January 6th, is this just the normal way that, that 
that memories fade and and how much of this is actually because in a 24 7 news cycle with adhd um the media has just simply moved on you know uh, come on that was like so january 6th that was so yesterday we got other things to think about so was it intentional on the part of mitch mcconnell and mccarthy and the leadership just to simply simply push this off into the into the past well i mean there's you can see um you know from the opposition to the to the commission um that it's certainly not something they want to be talking about right um so that's you know and as i said before like the part of what's happened here is also that you don't have a drumbeat on the other side um really emphasizing this i mean uh, joe biden has is is very has been very focused on you know uh, vaccination efforts and uh, trying to get some of his um, agenda passed, uh, you know, in some cases trying to make it bipartisan, um, you know, at least picking off one or two uh, uh, Republicans. So um, good luck with that, Joe. Yeah. So, it, it, but, but, you know, I, I will say this, he has not done, uh, made the mistake that I think some predecessors have made of, of letting the absence of bipartisanship um, stall things. Um, I think he ha- he's been willing to he and and congressional Democrats have been willing to push things through even if nobody on the other side is um, willing to go along. Um, but you know again, this dynamic that we're talking about is an emergence uh, of of this is part of this uh, polarization. Um, and I don't know whether it's epiphenomenal or whether it's the you know whether it's the cause. Um, there's some great work by Francis Lee, who studies Congress. Um, who was our guest yeah. last week, by the way. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. She's great. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and she's, she, uh, as your listeners will know then, um, you know, has some great work pointing out that uh, if you, you know, if, if, if Congress is up for grabs, which it wasn't for a long time, um, that you end up in this uh, with these narrow margins, you end up with this world where the best thing to do from a partisan perspective, strategy wise, is not to let the other side get any wins, um, because then you've got a chance to take things over. Whereas for, for you know, a long time, uh, Republicans uh, had no hope of winning the House, at least. And uh, so their best strategy was to try to get some things into bills um, by, by virtue of compromise, right? And that's something that's uh, no longer the case. So I think that's part of what's happened at the elite level. Um, and then, and then we, we talked, we're you know, talking about my focus is on the, on the mass level. And, and some of my research shows that, you know, this partisanship, you talk about cognitive dissonance and some of the cognitive things um, that are happening, uh, you know, in the average uh, partisan's mind. Um, and I, I use something to look at sort of subconscious subliminal partisanship um, and we very much associate our self-concept with our party um, at a very, you know, um, subliminal, subconscious, potentially level. And, uh, and I see that using a, a test called the implicit association test that measures, um, you know, cognitive associations, you know, associations in our minds between things. Um, and people very much associate either Democrat or Republican with their own self-concept. And that is correlated with how much they pursue motivated reasoning. Um, and it makes sense, right? If you've 
sort of internalized that me equals Democrat or me equals Republican, right? Um, and, and somebody attacks Democrat or Republican, that becomes tantamount to attacking you, right? Your, yourself. So let me let me follow wait, up wait, on that in a very practical on. way. Wait, though. wait, hold on. Oh. You got to hold on one second. Oh, all right. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to do this because I'm multitasking. And what just came across my phone was is something that is so on point. I've got to I've got to insert it. And that is a not the news report from The New Yorker satire from Andy Borowitz. And here are the two headlines. First. Republicans claim January 6th rioters were middle schoolers on field trip. Quote, I've had teenagers and I know what kind of horseplay and tomfoolery they can get up to. Senator Ron Johnson said, I didn't set up a commission every time they raised a little heck. And number two, quote, Kevin McCarthy proposes removing January 6th from month of January. Quote, the American people want us to move on, the House minority leader said. Now, it wouldn't be... It's actually not so satirical. All right. So let me pick up on that. Let me pick up on that because it's hard to do satire these days. Yeah. Well, because no one, no one gets it. No one gets that you're actually being (laughs) tongue in cheek. Right. So it's interesting because obviously Andy Barowitz is trying to be deliberately ridiculous. That's the, that's the heart of satire. Right. But you, you've referred to motivated reasoning in the context of cognitive dissonance. And my understanding is that cognitive dissonance is a term that was coined by a social psychologist in the 1950s who did a classic study that was in the book, When Prophecies Failed, about a doomsday cult in Chicago in the 1950s, headed by someone who prophesied that the world was going to end in a massive flood and a UFO was going to show up and beam people up and save them. What happened when the appointed date came and went, no flood, no spaceship? Do you think that the adherents to the cult dropped their belief in it? No, they doubled down. It was a classic case of, he coined the term, cognitive dissonance. And I worry a little bit, and where I'm going to tie this back, about, you know, we've now seen this, the big lie, right? The the election came and went, and now... Adherence to the cult of Trump has, like I said, kind of become the price of admission to the Republican Party. So here's my practical question for you. Can campaigns, can political campaigns even work anymore? Or do they need to be fundamentally rethought? And what I mean is studies show that swing voters comprise no more than six to nine percent of the electorate anymore. There's there's a vanishingly small number of voters who can actually be persuaded to vote one way or the other, either in successive elections or to split their ballot in a given election. And there's limited evidence that campaign methods to try to boost turnout are actually effective. It seems much more likely from what I've seen that the generalized environment is what really kicks up turnout. So what do campaigns do? They try to increase turnout on their side and they try and persuade people in the middle. It seems like everything you're saying about motivated reasoning, the way people take in information in a hyper-partisan environment and everything we know about cognitive dissonance suggests people who are already identified with one party or the other, they are gonna tune out anything that comes from the other side. And in fact, all it might do is rile them up, make them more likely to show up for their side. 
So do, what do you think? Do campaigns, can campaigns function or do they need to totally redo what they do? So let me, uh, so let me, uh, I'll get to that, but your, your, your example. So, and by the way, the, the Leon Festinger is the. Yes. Um, Leon Festinger. Person who, who came up with uh, cognitive dissonance. Um, uh, so you mentioned the, the, the uh, doomsday cults um, and, and it reminded me of a funny, uh, something funny from my days in grad school at Berkeley. Um, you know, when you walk onto the Berkeley campus, you often will see people uh, with signs, you know, advertising this or that or the other thing. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of tin hat sort of uh, stuff going on there. Um, and, and one of the things, and this actually got some attention, there was that one of these eschatology, you know, end of the world cults in Oakland um, that had predicted a very specific day. And, and just as a general matter, my um, one thing I've sort of picked up is that when people are predicting the end of the world, the right prediction to make is that it's not going to end. Um, just because if it does, nobody cares about your prediction. Um, but, uh, but there was this guy who was for, for weeks and months holding this sign uh, as I would enter the Berkeley campus saying that the world is going to end on this specific date. Um, and he was part of this cult that, that had a leader who had calculated somehow the day the world was going to end. And that day, of course, came and went um, and the, the world didn't end. And I think the, the leader um, sort of saved face by saying that it was a miscalculation or something and it was some other date. So, um, I, you know, as I'm walking to the Berkeley campus uh, a few days later, I see this same guy and he has the same sign, uh, but he whited out the date that he had put on there and put the new date on there, right? So, so, so a very <laughs> clear illustration of the kind of thing that, uh, that, that we're able to do when so much of ourselves, uh, when we invest so much of ourselves in a belief system or um, a leader or anything of, any, anything of, of that sort. Um, and anything that challenges it just yeah. causes us to double down. It doesn't, right. doesn't shake yeah, us often, out of it. Often. It's, it is very hard um, to, to pull people out of, out of these things. Um, a lot of it falls on leaders. A lot of it falls on leadership. Um, so you mentioned campaigns. Um, you know, political scientists have never, or at least not in the last 70 years, um, been very keen on the persuasive effects of campaigns. Um, even back into the period where, uh, where you, you would see the, um, the, the partisanship wasn't as strong as it is today, um, political scientists would often observe that basically it was you know, underlying things. And during the course of a campaign, what would happen is people would end up where you could predict they were gonna end up at the beginning of the campaign. Now that doesn't mean the campaign didn't matter uh, which was the conclusion for a long time, that campaigns don't matter. Um, that doesn't really mean the campaign doesn't matter, but it plays a different role than a persuasive role. It's, it can be an informative role. It can be a turnout uh, machine. It can be an educative role. Campaigns can matter. Uh, campaigns now, you know, very much focus on a little bit of persuasion, um, but largely, as you say, they focus on really identifying the voters who are if they turn out going to vote for uh, our side, but are not 100%, you know, guaranteed to turn out. So what can we do? You know, what what interventions can we implement that will boost their chances of, of showing up? So, you know, campaigns, I think, have increasingly realized that. 
Um, and that's largely what they do. And, um, you know, while there is a little bit of persuasion, there's, it's very small. Now, the flip side of that, I will say, is that because of the nature of our current partisanship, um, at least at the national level, our elections are very, very close, right? We're, we're in a historically close stretch of, um, of presidential elections, right? And if you look at House and Senate elections overall nationally, um, very close as well, right? Um, because the country is so evenly divided and because most states are off limits at the presidential level, right? So it's just a few states ends up being a small number of voters, right? So we've had two elections in the last, uh, you know, 21 years now where the, or yeah, two elections in the last 21 years where the popular vote winner didn't win the electoral college, right? Um, both in favor of Republicans, but that's not always necessarily the case. Um, and, and so again, because elections are so close, um, it means that any little thing can matter, right? So that means little turnout boosts, um, any tiny amount of persuasion. I mean, when you're looking at uh, Donald Trump winning because of like 70 something thousand votes across three states, I mean, that's nothing, right? That's, you see more effect, more movement than that if it rains on election day. Um, so that, that's, that's essentially nothing. So we have these coin toss elections where every little thing can matter. So even if there's a tiny amount of, of, um, you know, of persuasion and a very small number of voters who could be convinced to go one, the other direction, um, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of worth pursuing because uh, it could be decisive. So is is to what degree is Trump at the at the epicenter of this? Um, it seems like he really whips up a certain segment of Republicans to a degree that no one else is capable of. Uh, and he demands basically that they follow him off the cliff into non-reality. It's like it's like political Thelma and Louise. I mean, without Trump, would the situation be better? Would it be? Would it change? Is he a phenomenon, as uh, one-time presidential candidate Marianne Williamson called him? Is he a unique experience in 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 our political history, or is he simply a symptom of something deeper and longer lasting? Well, I, I think he's a symptom, and I think he exploited um, something that was that was already there. I mean, I I don't Trump didn't create. Our polarization. I think you can trace that there. You know, people always are trying to trace it back to different things. I think you know it could be Reagan, it could be um, you know the, the the Republican Revolution that we saw. Um, you know, some of it you look back at the Clinton years and you see it. Obviously, there was a big ramp up under Obama. I mean, I, we've been watching this polarization for for years. Um, I mean, you know, the '80s felt polarized, right? People really a lot of Democrats really didn't like Reagan. Um, it's only in the context, you know, it's like looking at like California housing prices, you know, in the, in the, in the seventies, people thought they were really, really high. Um, and it's only in the context of where they've gone um, that things are not, that they look that like things hadn't really gone up that much. And so that's the same thing with polarization. Like, you know, we, we thought in the early aughts that things were very polarized um, and it's only looking back now that that seems like this sort of um, quaint era where uh, things weren't so polarized, right? So, so there's, you know, there, there, 
polarization, had, there's been this sort of crescendo. Uh, what Trump did is he was just shameless in his willingness to exploit it for his own personal advancement um, in ways that I think other politicians had been, you know, maybe a little too, uh, I say too, as though it's a bad thing, but, you know, maybe had a little more conscience, um, weren't willing to just sort of uh, lie to people, weren't willing to, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, uh, stomp over all of our norms, um, that, that a lot, a lot of which turned out not to have very much, very much teeth behind them. Um, and so Trump, I think is somebody who, who very much exploited this. And that's just part of sort of who he is. I don't, you know, willingness to kind of, uh, say, forget the rules. Um, I'm all about me and I'm going to, I'm going to promote me and I'm, I'm willing to say whatever it takes and all of that. Uh, and hopefully the lesson, uh, won't be to people in his party and potentially people in the Democratic Party eventually that, oh, you know, you can get away with this stuff um, because it's been extremely damaging. Um, it started before Trump, and I blame Republican leaders in a, the way a lot of them were willing to just kind of, uh, you know, some of this racism and xenophobia with regard to Obama. Um, the, you know, all of that leaders, we, we, so I'm often the guy who is brought in to, um, to, to offer a pessimistic take. And I, uh, and I have in some ways a very pessimistic take. I mentioned before that what the main thing that has happened is that our parties have become aligned uh, with our ideologies and with our demographics and with all sorts of things. Um, and that's fundamentally what has happened that has led to this hyperpolarization. Um, but I will say that that's more normal I think the period of lacking polarization and, and partisans, partisanship not being aligned with these other things that we saw in the middle part of the last century, that's actually the anomaly. It's much more normal that our partisanship be strong and be aligned with these things. Um, so I'm not hopeful that we're gonna overcome that. Um, what I am hopeful that we can do is demand more of our leaders, demand more of the press um, in terms of holding our leaders' feet to the fire and, and, and eventually sort of demanding more of ourselves as voters. So, you know, if you're one of the many Republicans who looks at Donald Trump and says, well, I, I kind of like his policies. I hate his approach. I don't like the way he does all these things to divide us and the, 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 the way he behaves, you know, make those things a deal breaker, right? Don't just go along uh, because it's beneficial to you because you get a tax break. Don't just go along if you're in the Republican leadership because he is willing to let you pass um, some bills that you want to pass, right? Stand up to that part of the party. Stand up to the people who are inclined to tell you um, to, to, to feed conspiracy theories and, and promote misinformation. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. You alluded earlier to our last week, uh, Dr. Frances Lee. She was the upbeat version. She was the positivist. So if you want to hear that version of where we are in America, check out that last episode on Beyond Politics. If you want to hear, let's call it the reality-based cynicism. Uh, thank you, Dr. Theodoridis, for joining us and giving us that perspective. For Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time on Beyond Politics. Thank you all. This is fun. Thank you.